There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I always used to get obsessed with the, the term unconditional love because <laughs> that's always followed by like a mother has for their child. So it was always something that I was barred from feeling or, you know, the word love became this balloon that I was chasing. Mm. I think you did experience unconditional love from your, your birth mother because she did what she did. And that's incredibly hard. I cannot even begin to imagine the circumstances that would drive a mother to abandon me somewhere in a place where she knew that I would be picked up. As a baby in the 1950s, Lucy was flown from Hong Kong to England and adopted by a British couple. Her story is one marked with the trials and tribulations of growing up in a country and culture different to your own. Sharing his experience with Lucy is Jamie. Growing up, Jamie was told bedtime stories about an adopted child, which reflected his own life and normalised adoption for him. It wasn't until his 20s that he became curious about his biological mother. Today on The Gap, adoption. Hello. Hi. I'm Jamie. Lucy. Nice nice to meet you. you. How old were you when you found out you were adopted? It's a bit difficult to say, actually, because I used to get read a bedtime story um, to try and introduce the idea to me quite early. So there wasn't a single point I remember, to be honest. It was always just the reality that I knew. And what age was that when you were being read? So from as early as I can remember, I just remember it was every night I got read the same story. So it was kind of like the day in the life of a normal child. And then it just said, but I'm special because I'm adopted at the end of it. So it was just always my reality. And did that click quite early on? Yeah, yeah, because it, in a way it made it sort of a bit more of a better thing because I was kind of special and chosen. Yeah. Um, so it was quite a nice way to find out, actually. There was no kind of one singular moment. What about yourself? Uh, me, it was a bit more dramatic. Oh, I really? I was three, four. Uh, my adoptive mother was a, a primary school teacher. So I got hauled into school as a, a bring-and-tell object and stood on a desk and presented to the other kids, about 30 of them. And that was how you found out? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I suppose around about that age, because um, Britain was a very different country then, you were sort of talking the back end of the 50s, early 60s, and I was the only kind of, like, non-white presence where I grew up apart from an Indian restaurant. So it was me and this Indian restaurant. Um, 
but I, I suppose at some point I would have realised quite early on that I was different. Mm. So it's quite, I mean, I, it's quite amusing now to actually <laughs> think, but that's how I found out. Quite um, a shock at the yeah. time. I mean, I had kids coming up to me, kind of like um, licking their fingers to see if the yellow would come off. Wow. So it's that the usual kind of like, but that was, you know, you're talking 50s, 60s, so, you know, that's the way that people thought. Yeah. And that's how I found out. God. Yeah. Quite different. <laughs> Very different. And one hopes that, that would never happen to, to a modern, well, um, adoptee, but who knows. Do you know why you were adopted? Yes and no. That was one of the few things that my adoptive mother told me. She told me that I was adopted because God told her to. And that was the end of that. And I think I was told that when I was around about 11. Beyond that, no. Yeah. No, because my adoptive family had no uh, connection to the Far East. As far as I'm aware, they'd never been out set, set foot outside this country. So it was kind of like quite strange. Yeah. What about you? So uh, it's difficult. I was only really given small bits of information, but really the question why I was adopted was never addressed. Mm. So I kind of found that out much later on when I traced my birth family. Oh, right. And then I got given all the information. So that was when I was about 26. Mm-hmm. So it was just little bits of information as in sort of my birth mum was a bit too young to look after me. So it was all very kind of sugar-coated. But I also didn't really ask the question why very often. It was only later in life that that question really became quite important to me. And did, did what you'd been told sort of fit with what you finally found out about? Yeah, largely, yeah. So the, the little bits of information that got absolutely were consistent. I think on, on reflection, it probably would have been nice to know a bit more, but then it's really difficult, I suppose, for my parents to have known sort of what was best at that time. But yeah, the, the question why, like I say, it was something that I wasn't really that transfixed with until I was a bit older, really. And how, how much older would you say that you were by the time that question was something that you wanted to know? Late teenage years. And rather than just asking the question, instead it was just a burning question in my head. Um, so it was only until I was in my sort of later half of my 20s until I actually thought, right, I need to actually go and find out. I need to go and tackle this question. So it was a bit odd, really. Like, when I try and look back at the way that I dealt with that question, it, it, it was a bit silly, really. Like, I could have actually helped myself a lot more by simply just asking the questions. Yeah, it's not an easy question to ask, though. No, it's Because, not. I mean, I think in terms of... Adoptees, and specifically, um, I'm sure it's probably the same with national same-race adoptees. I found, particularly with myself and also other other transracial adoptees that I've now come across, that the questions and the I suppose the challenges become greater as you get older, because the those kind of like lifelines, those life markers, take on a particular significance. So, I mean, in terms of what my adoptive parents told me about why I was adopted, one of the other things that was thrown at me because of the time that we were in and because of the way that um, adoptive, transracial adoptive parents weren't actually given any kind of support was that um, was my, my birth mother didn't want me mm. and that no information was known about me or where I came from, which I later found out 50 years later was completely complete and utter hogwash. 
So I have a huge international social services file, which outlines where I was found, the clothes that I was wearing, possibly how old I was, possibly where I may have come from, may not have come from, why I was left where I was in Hong Kong. Wow. So that was more of a shock to me, finding out that there was information on me beyond the fact that I'd just been abandoned in Hong Kong. And that was something that I found quite difficult to deal with because it would have answered quite a lot of my own personal questions and may have led to me, because I went back to Hong Kong in the late 70s for the first time, when the orphanage was still around, might have led to me discovering or, or at least understanding more about the circumstances of my abandonment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a difficult one, though, because a child actually asking questions that a parent can't answer beyond the normal stuff that parents learn how to do because you don't get given a manual is actually quite difficult. Mm. And I think you have to be, in any circumstances, actually a really strong, confident person in of yourself, as well as a parent, to actually sort of tackle those questions. And I, I don't know what the answer is to that for somebody who's adopted how, or, or an adoptive parent, how, how you actually handle that. What is your relationship to your biological parents? So I have actually traced them, and that was when I was age 26. And it's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It's been so lovely to meet them all. So um, my birth mother, my aunties, my half-brothers, there's three of them, we've all got absolutely brilliant relationships now. So if, if anything, I kind of wished I'd done the whole tracing process a little sooner instead of leaving it so late, but I've, I've got no regrets. It's absolutely wonderful, yeah. yeah. Because it doesn't always work out like that. It doesn't, no. And I, I know that I was lucky. Um, I was lucky because I was given up because my birth mum couldn't have given me the life that she wanted to give me. It was quite a nice circumstance. And therefore, she had spent quite a lot of time also hoping that I got back in touch with her. Mm. So at that moment, then, it was very much kind of your, your fairy tale, lovely story, which I'm obviously very, very lucky for. But Brilliant. Have you traced your birth family? Um, I would like to, but it's really difficult because the time that um, I was abandoned in Hong Kong was quite not a very good time for the, the locals there. And there were quite a lot of um, young children that were, well, and babies that were abandoned. And they didn't keep records very, very well. So, and in, nine, in the early 90s, they burnt all of them. They just got rid of all of the, all mm. of the records. And then after that, I think about five years later, that the orphanage was sold and demolished because it was on prime real estate in Hong Kong, which is like gold dust, so of sold off. Is your birthday your birthday? No. My birthday is the day that I was registered at the orphanage in Hong Kong. So uh, I was found three days earlier, and because of how small I was and how ill, they're not quite sure exactly how old I am. No so, way. Um, I could be the age that I am, or I could actually be significantly older because I was malnourished and, and very, very ill. I've never heard of that yeah, before. So never heard mad, of that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about you? Um, yeah, I, it is. Yeah, oh, right. absolutely. Yeah. So, um, well, when I was born, um, my birth mother actually <laughs> gave me a different name, so I was Thomas. Um, but then, when the adoption all went through, which was quite soon after, then I became Jamie. But yeah, my birthday is my birthday. <laughs> Did you keep your adoption a secret? 
No, I don't think so. If anything, it, certainly in my early years, it was kind of like a distinguishing feature of me. Because it had been positioned to me as something that, you know, the, the, the terminology of you're special, you're chosen, which is what this bedtime story related to. Actually, it was something that I kind of wore quite proudly. It was only really when I was in my teenage years when sort of I was trying to unpick it and kind of understand and filter out some of the anxieties around, I suppose as an adopted person, quite often you can feel unwanted, unloved, and you know, that kind of element. So at that time, perhaps it wasn't something that I would always enter in a new relationship disclosing, but yeah, I don't think I've ever really kind of withheld the information. Yeah. Yourself? Um, I couldn't really hide it, so. <laughs> Uh, of course, yeah, as you said, yeah. Um, being brought up by um, a white family uh, living in a predominantly, well, a, a, a white, middle-class, kind of like conservative area, um, no. Yeah. So uh, that was, and the time being it was, that was uh, more of a stick was used to beat me by, um, you know, well, kids are pretty cruel anyway at that age, aren't they? So, yeah. Um, yeah. so did you experience quite a lot of negative... Yes. Feelings. I mean, I think that's, that, I mean, that's more to do with the time. Um, bearing in mind, I came over two, three years after the, the Notting Hill riots and four or five years before Enoch Powell's famous Rivers of Blood speech. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of uh, social situation vis-a-vis -vis, um, people of colour that I, I came into to Britain. So it was, it, it was the norm, you know, sort of people who are not white were the exception to the rule. How did you have the conversation about being adopted with partners and friends? I talk openly about it with my husband and my daughter and friends. I don't think it has the same sting as it used to. Maybe that's because I'm older and hopefully wiser. I don't know, um, I've got more experience, but it, it's not something that defines me as well as before it did. It was. It was not only was I adopted, but I was also somebody that wasn't white. So the, those were the two defining things for superficially for most people about me. Yeah. Yeah, for, for me, I, I've gone through different sorts of phases of how I disclose, disclose and discuss this. Um, certainly when I was at school, it was something that I was a little bit nervous to disclose because it, the people that I was disclosing it to weren't necessarily in a position of understanding it. So I got asked a lot of quite probing questions that made me feel, well, just different, and no one wants to feel different at that age. Where I'm at now, I did quite a lot of work for the adoption agency that placed me, so therefore I do kind of fly the flag quite a lot, and it's become quite a thing of pride for me. So absolutely, I'm very happy to disclose it and discuss it, and very, very happy to be asked questions around it as well. But I do remember that time, though, when I was younger, of really feeling quite anxious to, to have that conversation with friends and yeah it's, it's it's gone through quite a journey for me really i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Did your feelings about being adopted change as you got older? Yes. Yes, absolutely. In a weird sort of shape as well, because when I was very young, it was a positive thing. It was that I was chosen, I was lucky, I was, you know, kind of quite talked up in a way that I felt almost, um, almost a bit arrogant that kids who weren't adopted, I sort of thought, oh, that's a shame. Um, but then sort of in my teenage years, stoked by my own sort of anxieties, then I started to ask questions around sort of was I unwanted, unloved, you know, and, and kind of gave, and it was my own self-prescribed negative sort of veil that I'd put on it. But yeah, it became profoundly negative during that time. And it was mixed with other things about the fact that I'm gay. That was on top of the fact that I'm adopted and various other things that were going on in my life that, that kind of just culminated in, in a profoundly negative feeling. But then when I'd done the whole tracing process and I'd understood sort of where I'd come from, um, then it became positive again. And really what, what I'd stopped doing at that, I think the defining point was that I'd stopped looking backwards at something that I couldn't define and then was able just to start looking forwards. Um, so yeah, I've, I've gone through quite a lot of different feelings on it. Yeah. yeah. But I'm in a good place now. I mean, I think it's a strange one for me it, it, because it started off very much as a, a negative thing. I guess, from a social sort of uh, cultural demographic and was always something that was a barrier. And initially, I mean, all kids, they want to, they don't want, you, you never want to stand out. You want to be like everybody else, yeah. but at the same time, you do want to be unique. So that for me was a defining thing that whatever I did, I would, I would always stick out like a sore thumb for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I mean, I sort of went through uh, phases of, of trying to wash and make myself white and pray for that and all the, the rest of that, the, those things which are utterly ludicrous and obviously it's, it's never going to happen. And then I went uh, back to Hong Kong for the first time, which completely changed my understanding of me initially as a human being, especially when it comes in relation to, to living here. Um, and for the first time, I was able to walk down a street 
and actually not be the odd one out oh, and actually yeah. look across and, and see everybody, just me reflected back in various different guises. It was the weirdest, a wonderful thing, but incredibly weird. And I realised at that point that I spent most of my time when, I'm, when I was here walking around with my head pointed down so that people wouldn't notice. So I came back here and I suppose a mini light bulb went off and you, in, in accepting that, there were just as many people over in Hong Kong who didn't accept me because I didn't speak Cantonese, I wasn't brought up in that culture, as there were people over here who didn't accept me um, because I wasn't white, um, even though I'd been brought up uh, in, in a white house, household, English is my first language, etc., etc. Mm. All of those, those things. Um, so, uh, you, I mean, I think I sort of subliminally or, or subconsciously got to the point where I had to either accept what I was and try and make my own peace with that and move forward and try and take some kind of positive out of that and, yeah. and be a human being rather than obsessing about other people, you know, think you should or should not be. Okay. What was one negative experience of adoption? I think the most negative thing about the adoption when I was adopted was the prescriptive idea that, you know, sort of it's a clean break. You don't acknowledge what's happened to the child, the world that that child may have come from, whether that's for 11 months, three years or, or 10 years. Um, it, the only way that you can, you can deal with it is by basically cutting all, all links, which is complete nonsense. And he also says to the child, you know, that that part of you doesn't matter. And you should never, that should never apply to anybody, adopted or, or whatever. It's part of who you are as a, as a human being and will form the basis of, of, of how you, you grow up. So I think that's the, not so much my adoption, but adoption as it was then. I think that was the most negative thing because it, it prevented it, I think, from becoming, for many of us, a positive experience. Yeah. You know, um, and that's just the, the, you know, the times that we were in. I mean, unfortunately, I still have come across people who do still think in those terms when it comes to adoption, especially transracial adoption. Yeah. There is a kind of a veneer of, you know, sort of you're saving a, a child from a, a country that is less capable of, of looking after its own, which is not true. Yeah. Um, and it's quite an imperialist mindset. <laughs> it is. I mean, I think there's a lot, there is a lot of uh, colonialism yeah. and, you know, sort of colour po politics um, that goes into transracial adoption because it does come from empire. It does come from a place of, of superiority and, and, and thinking, you know, so Britannia rules the waves, et cetera, and West is best, which we know now is not particularly the case. Mm. However, there will always, unfortunately, I think, be need for adoption, whether that's uh, transracial or, or, or national, or inter-country or, or whatever, because, you know, sort of children lose parents or, or disasters happen. But I tend to favour the idea that, you know, sort of those that have the ability and the money should be investing in the countries to help them raise the level of their, their childcare so that those children can remain where they are 
rather than, you know, sort of, when I was adopted, we were very much viewed as gifts because we came over, the, the tranche that I came over came over just before Christmas and all of the headlines were, you know, China dolls, Christmas presents, etc. Which, as you know, is, is something that when you're placing a child now, you avoid those high holidays because it's a hiatus. It's, it's not an environment that is good for a child to come into because it's, it's not reflective of what goes on for the other 364 years yeah. in, in the year. That was all kind of like very, you know, sort of chocolate box, you know, sort of Chinese presents and do China dolls, etc. you know, making us in, into to objects. It's crazy uh, to think that yeah. now. <laughs> well, I, fortunately, it still goes on, I think, sometimes in, yeah. in certain, you know, sort of certain mindsets, which is kind of like quite disturbing. Yeah. So do you think that you would be the same person if you hadn't been adopted? No. Nah. If I hadn't been adopted, I probably would have been dead. That's how ill I was. So from that point of view, when people say, especially of transracial adoptees, you, you have to be grateful. Yes, of course I'm grateful. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I wouldn't have the life that I have if I hadn't been adopted. However, having said that, you know, if I hadn't been adopted, that's not to say that I would not have had an equally amazing life if I'd remained in Hong Kong, if I had... Um, gone beyond uh, infancy, mm. um, which is highly unlikely if I'd stayed in the orphanage. So, yeah. you know. So there's some really obvious points around, like, the school that you went to is because you were adopted mm. and your interest in subjects was because you went to that school and therefore that's what your career did. There's some really obvious points around that. But also, having met my birth family, it was really interesting to find out how much we had in common as well. So certainly in the early stages, like it was, it was, oh my God, same, yeah, I think that too. Well, that's my favorite this and I love that too. And the, it, all of a sudden, whereas I'd really previously, I'd invested very heavily in the notion of kind of um, nurture in the whole nature nurture argument, almost 100% I would argue for the nurture side because that's what I knew. Now I can sort of see that there is some balance between the two. Um, so I definitely don't think I'd be the same person if I wasn't adopted, mm. but it'd be really interesting to see if you could sort of delve into that parallel universe because I reckon there'd be some similarities. I mean, I'm very conscious of the fact, or, or maybe I romanticise this slightly, but I wouldn't be the person that I am if I wasn't my birth mother's and birth father's daughter. Mm. You know? But there is an element of, 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 of nurture, not so much from my adoptive parents, but uh, definitely from uh, my my adopted mother's grandmother, from which I learned an awful lot. Mm. And that fed into me. I learned about socialism. I learned, you know, how to cook. And that, that is part of who I am. So, yeah, it, it's, it is a mixture. And at best, it's always going to be a mixture. Yeah. I think. Yeah, definitely. Mm. What's a common misconception of adoption? Ooh, common misconception that everything, everyone's the same if adopted, I would say. Um, like a lot of people say, oh yes, I've got a friend and he always says this, do you think that? And it's like, actually no, it's, there's just a whole amount of layers of different circumstances and people in all of this. Um, so yeah, I think the idea that we're one homogenous group is probably the biggest misconception. Yeah, I mean, I concur with that. I mean, especially when it comes to... Uh... East Asians and, and transracial adoption. It's like, oh, you must know. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Why would, you know, 
that I think that is a common miscon you know misconception that all adoptees are the same and they kind of like will bond because you're adoptees and it's like well no it's yeah. like saying just because you're male you'll get on well yeah exactly well, I get I get that for oh you're gay oh my cousin's gay do you know him maybe no. I'll set you up with him like it's <laughs> yeah it's the same thing it's the same thing it's just very a, irritating very <laughs> yeah right um how has adoption affected your love life Mm. I think in the early days it did affect my ability to be trustful in relationships. So I always used to get obsessed with the, the term unconditional love because that's always followed by, like a mother has for their child, so it was always something that I was barred from feeling or, you know, the word love became this balloon that I was chasing and yet I knew that I had it from everyone around me so it was, it was a bizarre kind of thing for me. Um, I do think that I have certainly earlier in life struggled to connect with people in the way that others I've seen have connected with others. Um, and I think it all boils down to this idea that in some way I was excluded from the normal notion of love. Mm. And yet I've got to where I am now and I've realised that that was all just silly and self-imposed, but I can identify with that question. I think you did experience unconditional love from your your birth mother because she did what she did and that's incredibly hard i cannot even begin to imagine the circumstances that would drive a mother to as for like me to abandon me somewhere in a place where she knew that i would be picked up mm. it's called abandoned in order to be found that's what they called it yeah similarly with your mother knowing that she wanted you to have a life how has adoption affected your social status? That's actually quite a difficult question. Um, in the grand scheme of things, I don't feel like I was hugely affected in terms of social status, but I can kind of, that resonates a little bit with my teenage years, definitely. Thank God, because when I was growing up, there was no such thing as Facebook, there weren't any mobile phones, <laughs> landlines, three channels on the TV, and that was it. So yeah. social status in that sense, it didn't, it didn't affect me at all because I think uh, as kids then, we didn't have any. We were just kids, basically, mm. and there was none of this stuff that goes on now. I would hate to be a child now. Would you adopt? Yes, absolutely yes. When I'm ready, mm. I'm too busy having holidays and stuff at the moment, but yes, I can't wait, can't wait. I feel like I've got a lot to offer in terms of the, the child's development and sort of that what would have been quite nice when I was growing up, and I had my brother who was also adopted as well, but it would have been quite nice to have had um, a little more adult understanding to help to coach me through that journey. Um, I can't wait to do that. I really genuinely can't wait to do that, yeah. Would I adopt? No, I wouldn't. I have a daughter of my own, which is, which is great. I think from my point of view is that I would want... To, to have adopted somebody that was of East Asian heritage. Finding a British East Asian um, child in the system that needs to be adopted, not too, there are not too many of those. So it would have meant me going uh, back to mainland China. And the conditions under which the, the children that are up for adoption is not something that I, I would necessarily want to support. Also, it, you know, it was a dichotomy. I would be taking a child away from 
their kind of like their, their culture, their you know sort of yeah. whatever. And that having been done to me, and I didn't particularly like it, um, the challenges that that created for me, I wouldn't necessarily want to give those to another child. Do you think that might be different if you if if you lived in Hong Kong and had done your whole life, but were still adopted? Mm. Do you think your answer might be different then because you're in I the country? I think so, yes. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Well, Thank you very much. Lovely it's to meet you. Lovely to meet you. And you. We'll be back again next week, sitting down with John and Steve as they talk about serving on the front line of war, 40 years apart. What are your feelings towards the enemy now in comparison to at the time? At the time, I didn't. It's, it's weird, because I'm going to probably stand out here, is I didn't have any hate for them. When I went out there, I believed that we were fighting in someone else's country and they were defending it, in a way. Yeah, they had, everyone has their own you know, perception of it all, but I believed that we were fighting an enemy just like they were fighting us. If we were fighting in, in Liverpool city centre, an yeah. enemy that was invading us, that's how I pitched it. Yeah. So the reason I fought so hard, and so violently, if you like, was I've got eight lads there that needed to come home. So, they were coming home. There's no way we could have left there because it's a war crime. Yeah. But I think that's one of the other reasons why I left, because yeah. I didn't believe in it in the end. From Lad Bible, you've been listening to The Gap. We're so grateful to Lucy and Jamie for sharing their adoption stories with us. If you're enjoying The Gap so far, feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review. And of course... Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you like to listen, so you never miss an episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.